Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Jessica Ouvrard. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. In this episode, art archivist Geneviève Marin and conservator Lynn Curry from Library and Archives Canada join us to discuss the William Redver Stark film. We explore his background, look at his time as a soldier during the First World War, and the artwork he produced, specifically the 14 sketchbooks included in his film. Hello Geneviève, hi Lynn, thank you for being here today. Hi, glad to be here. Hi, me too. <laughs> Excellent. Can you tell us a bit about William Redver Stark and his background? Uh, sure, there's not much we know about Stark. Most of what we know comes from his uh, military records. But uh, the little bit we've been able to find uh, on top of that is that uh, he was born in Toronto in 1885. And he studied at the Ontario College of Art. And he also studied somewhere in the United States. We're not quite sure where, somewhere possibly in Pennsylvania, but we're still looking into that. Um, he became a member of the Society of Graphic Artists, and uh, before the war he actually did quite a few exhibitions. Uh, he exhibited with the Ontario Society of Artists as well as the Royal Canadian Academy, and uh, on a few accounts, um, where he exhibited quite a few works, and most of his favourites were landscapes or even animal depictions, which later in life he would become known for his actual um, animal depictions. Um, we do know that after the war, he did some more exhibitions. He actually did some exhibitions in uh, Wembley in, in England, and as well as in Paris. Uh, but most of his exhibition work was done in, uh, in Canada. Um, other than his uh, exhibitions, he worked as a freelance artist for the Toronto Star Weekly, and he also did freelance illustrations for um, children's books as well as educational books. In 1921, he married a young woman by the name of Marjorie Crouch, who was 24. He was 36, I believe. Um, so he, uh, he started a new life with a young woman after the war, and they had one daughter together. Um, and that's pretty much how he ran his life until uh, his death in Toronto in 1953 and we find his tombstone in uh, the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. In Toronto? In Toronto. Do we know when Stark enlisted? We do. His attestation papers are now available. They've been digitized here at Library and Archives Canada and we can look them up online where we learn that he signed up on June the 6th, 1916. And we learn a few other interesting things, that he had uh, brown hair and gray eyes, he had a scar on his forehead, and he wasn't a very tall man. He was five feet, four inches, and three quarters. The three quarters is very important when you're a small person. I know. Um, he still lived with his parents when he enlisted, and he lists his mom as his next of kin. Um, and what's getting a little curious is that he gave a different date of birth when he signed up. So we know his date of birth as being February 4th, 1885, but on his attestation papers, he's got uh, March the 4th, 1886 as his date of birth, which is interesting because he didn't have to, we don't understand what he had, what he had to gain uh, by telling us that he was 30 instead of 31 when he signed up. Um, the likeliest explanation is back then, he must have not known his exact date of birth, or he may have just forgotten, or his mother may have confused him with another sibling, and he had his brother's date of birth in mind. So it's, it's unclear why he would have done that, but um, there it is. How did Stark get involved in creating art during the war, given that he wasn't an official war artist? 
Well, it wasn't uncommon for artists to uh, draw and doodle while they were on the front. They had some free time. They were, you know, hanging around waiting for their orders or during, you know, the, the in the evenings they would um, need to find something to do and often they would draw to, to record what they experienced during the day or just to keep themselves busy. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon to see um, artwork done by, uh, by uh, soldiers, even those who weren't really artists. Um, to be an official war artist, Stark was probably not prominent enough as an artist to have been picked up. Um, the Canadian War Memorials Fund um, was uh, an effort that was um, that involved uh, artists from many nationalities to document the Canadian experience on the on the front during the First World War. And so they had a really big pool to choose from and a pretty important pool to choose from. Uh, three members of the future that would become the Group of Seven were actually part of the official war artists. Arthur Lismer, uh, Frederick Varley and A.Y. Jackson, as well as other important artists such as David Milne and Florence Weil. Um, so Stark, despite the fact that he was a good artist, was probably not noticeable enough as an artist to have been picked. Um, so the most obvious reason why Stark would have created art was quite basically because he was an artist and he liked to draw. Is it possible to trace Stark's movements through the war? Absolutely. Um, William Redvers Stark was part of the 1st Battalion of the Canadian Railway Troops and so uh, we do have his uh, the war diary for this battalion which is an, a fascinating read and is available again on our website in digital format. Um, the battalion headquarters moved often, but they always sort of stayed in a little pocket, a little area uh, north of France and a little bit western Belgium. So we can sort of, it's very interesting and I've actually tried it, sort of writing down the names of the cities and the towns where they were, where the headquarters were, where the men were stationed, and then just go to Google Maps and try to sort of trace out the little pattern that comes up. And it's true, it's a very small area, but when you think of the work these men were doing, you know, railway work and laying tracks and digging and digging trenches. So it was intense work on f on on small on small territory. But right. But it was it was hard work. Um, what's even more interesting once you delve into the war diaries is that the the sketchbooks get a whole different level of of meaning. Uh, Stark didn't identify many of his drawings, didn't date them, so when you read this, the, the war diaries along with the sketchbooks, then you, you're getting a whole other sort of set of information. And the best example I have for this is um, we have these representations in the sketchbooks of soldiers building these extremely intricate wooden structures underneath a perfectly intact bridge which is quite curious because the railway troops were always rather working on either building a bridge or repairing one that had been shelled or destroyed somehow. So this one is perfectly intact and it's kind of curious that they're spending all this time sort of building underneath it. And um, I found this, this entry in the war journal um, that mentions that the, um, the, the battalion received news that uh, intelligence was telling them that the Germans were eyeing this this bridge to, to blow it up so they were sent to actually reinforce it before the Germans got there I'd like to read a passage from the from the war diary if you if, if I can um, this is from July 1918 work comprises the putting in of heavy timber centering in three large masonry arches the timber being sufficient to carry a dead load of the structure the live load of the heaviest train on top and in addition, a two deep steel rails covering that has been placed on the floor of the bridge as a bomb burster. 
The work comprised the framing and erection of about 200,000 feet of timber and over a mile of steel rails. So this is the kind of work these guys were doing. But it's so fascinating that they, they were doing preemptive work as well. And because of this tiny little passage in the, in the diary, now I have three watercolors that I can identify and date right. in the sketchbook, which, becomes, which makes it all the more useful for, for researchers who were interested in this particular bridge that was called the Vimereux Viaduct, which was very important for the transport of goods to and from the front. And I think Lynn... Yes. Also of interest in sketchbook number 10 is a paper label on the inside cover with a bookseller's information, and it reads Ragon, Boyval, Dunkirk, 1F10, and what that represents is the location of the bookseller, where the sketchbook came from, in Dunkirk, the, uh, the location of the building, and 1F10 is the price that would have been paid for that sketchbook. There are other tickets, labels in other sketchbooks, but none of them are so specific as to the location and the cost of the sketchbook. So that shows that he was there as well, buying that sketchbook. And Dunkirk is actually one of the locations that have been identified in the War Diary as being one of the battalion's headquarters. So yeah. we've got all this information that's corroborating or, or accompanying the War Diary. That's amazing. How did Stark manage to draw and paint so many works in so little time? Well, Stark was in France from October 1916 to October 1919. And if you count his training days at Valcartier beforehand, he was in, he was in the army for almost a thousand days. So if you look at his 480 drawings, and we do know that there are other sketchbooks out there, um, he, it, it, he wasn't all that prolific. It was maybe an, on average a, a drawing every two or three days. The nice thing about Stark's work is that he did it in these very tiny sketchbooks that were very easy to transport. He could put one in a pocket or put one in a backpack. So they were always ready, always near him, so he could grab one whenever the, the, the inspiration struck. And the other thing is his choice of medium. He would always work with pencil or mostly work with pencil and watercolor, which are something that explorers and soldiers have carried around for, for centuries. They're easy, they're fast, and it's not as fast as taking a snapshot with a camera, but almost, where you take your pad out and you scribble something quickly and you finish it once you're back at camp with dinner, or maybe after dinner, with a cigarette. What is included in the Stark phone? And what steps is Library and Archives Canada taking to ensure his works are available for future generations? Well, as I mentioned, the Stark Fonds um, doesn't contain any of his textual archives. We do have the 14 sketchbooks that are made up of roughly 480 drawings and watercolors. Um, now, what we've been doing to ensure that uh, the public has access to them, they've all been digitized and described at the item level, so researchers can actually look at each and every single drawing um, through, um, through our website. Um, and I think Lynn... Yes, as well as the preservation, copying, and accessibility of the images on LAC's website, the conservation treatment of the sketchbooks will take place to repair and consolidate the binding structures and the pages. Components such as the sewing structure that holds the pages together, as well as the materials that make up the exterior covers of the sketchbooks, all need to be consolidated. The conservation treatment will enable the sketchbooks to function as intended. Pages will be able to turn again, etc. Uh, as well as that, the all 14 sketchbooks have been rehoused in archival containers, 
and they're in a temperature environmentally controlled vault at Library and Archive Canada's Preservation Centre. How long is the conservation process and what kind of challenges do you run into? Well, the conservation process begins with a thorough examination and documentation, both photographically and written documentation of, of what we're finding. Uh, as well as that, a treatment, conservation treatment proposal and a time estimate is done for each book. And the consultation occurs with uh, the conservation team, the archival specialist, Genevieve, and the collection management team to uh, agree upon the conservation that will take place as well as the setting priorities for which sketchbooks will be done first. In this project, it was determined that five of the sketchbooks were more likely to be asked for, for a loan and then the other sketchbooks will follow suit after that. In the case of the 14 Stark sketchbooks, the conservation estimates range from 8 hours to 80 hours per sketchbook depending on the severity of damage and deterioration. The sketchbooks exhibit the same type of damage but to varying degrees. I can say that the damage is mostly physical wear and tear as opposed to any type of chemical instability within the paper or the binding materials. Okay. And then the most challenging part of the project is the fact that pages have been removed from each sketchbook. Now it's speculation to say whether Stark removed the pages before, during, or after drawing in the sketchbooks or whether they were removed later, much later, by a family member or another person. Nonetheless, the action of removing a page from the sketchbook leaves the other half of the folded folio. Sometimes it remains securely in place, but most likely it breaks off, leaving a detached page within the block. Three of the sketchbooks were found to be virtually a pile of half folios or single sheets, apparently in random order. We've just completed what we call a page mapping, where we look at every detached page and try to locate it within the text block. That's quite the puzzle, eh? It is. It's like a forensic examination, looking at every detail of the paper, the binding, the drawing marks, the overlapping media, image transfers, indentations, and stains. When this is complete, then the sketchbooks can be reassembled in their original order. Or the suspected order. It's not 100% sure that this is the actual order. It's not, and, and I recently had a, another surprise because this acquisition came in before I was an archivist here. I just had the, had the wonderful opportunity to take over from where the other uh, archivist left off. He left on retirement sort of halfway through. And uh, little, uh, I didn't know this, it was uh, that some of the sketchbooks were actually returned to the family, um, most likely at their request. Um, but we thought we only had these 14 sketchbooks, but now it turns out that there are more out there. So Lynn's puzzle has become more complicated, but again, less frustrating because she knows that if a page doesn't fit, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, this is it. She has, she knows now that maybe it fits in one of the missing sketchbooks. Have you discovered anything exciting? Well, yes, we've discovered a lot of really interesting little details about the sketchbooks. In our examination, we really looked deeply at all the components of, of the format of the sketchbook. Not, we're not looking so much at the works of art, but 
the materials in which they are painted on and the bindings that they're in. And when you lay all the 14 sketchbooks out on a table, you'd really notice uh, certain similarities in the style of the binding, the covering material, a very, very plain canvas cotton, very coarse, utilitarian looking, totally no decoration on the covers at all. There's almost always a little slot for a pencil to be held and an elastic or a snap or ties or something on the foredge just to keep the binding closed when it's probably in your rucksack or wherever it is. Uh, some of the, the details about the nature of the paper and the binding components were quite interesting in that the watercolor paper that was in six of the sketchbooks was very, very high quality, known paper makers where there was a book ticket, a color maker's label, or some such identification of the paper within the book. Can you go a little bit what that means? Okay, sure. Uh, for the, the In the watercolor paper, one of the devices that the paper makers use to identify their paper is a watermark, which is visible only through transmitted light. You hold a sheet up or you look, put a light source under it, and then you can see the watermark. What we were finding is that there were a number of watermarks, or there are a number of watermarks, in the Stark sketchbooks, and they're all from English, England papermakers. We have one watermark in sketchbook one, 1915 England, in sketchbook seven, 1916 unbleached Arnold, and Arnold was a papermaker in England, and in sketchbook 11, we have a watermark England handmade. Another device that's used by either the manufacturer or the bookseller is a device known as a book ticket or a colorman's label and these two devices can be on a label, a paper label printed with information about the paper or the sketchbook as well as perhaps an address to where it was sold from and we'd have a number of those tickets and labels in the sketchbooks. I'll give you a couple of examples. Sketchbook one has Newman Soho Square as the source of the sketchbook and that is also in London. Sketchbook three has a Windsor Newton England. Uh, actually there were three Windsor Newton Englands and then there were two from France, the one I mentioned earlier, Dunkirk, a paper label, and another ink stamp from Maison Chalmer Paris. So these would have been where the sketchbooks were sold. Do you have a favorite Stark work? I do. My favorite is um, a very simple view of two women in a field. And uh, it's such a wonderful work because the colors are so vibrant and saturated. And the play of light and color in the image is just beautiful. You can see, you can see the wind blowing through the trees. You can, you can imagine it just by looking at the image because you've got this sort of this dappled light. And these are just two women seen from a, a rather good distance. One is crouched down and she's picking something in the field. And the other one is standing straight up with her hands in her back and she's looking off into the distance and the first time I, I, I really stopped and looked at this image I realized that it kind of looked like a like a snapshot something taking out like a, a, a split second where one is bending over the other one standing up and it's something that Stark might have seen while he was marching by and then I realized 
Is that what that woman is watching? Is Stark's battalion just marching by in the field, going to their next assigned job, and they're just watching this train of men with giant machines walking by? And um, so it's 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 a really interesting photo, just because it keeps you guessing at what is that woman looking at? Where yeah. was Stark when he took this? Was Stark actually marching by? And he just went, hmm, I have to remember this for later. Mm. But and the, the sheer beauty of it, the the color and the and the light are just beautiful. Mm. Well, my I think my favorite image has to do with a very simple sketch of a man crouched down, and he by candlelight he's drawing in a book, and I can just imagine that it's Stark or another one of the men in their quiet moment with their little sketchbook by candlelight writing drawing or writing in their journal or their or their sketchbook and on the outside covers of two of the sketchbooks we found drops of wax and it just really made me feel that this was a real true image that was happening and they were using those books in those conditions it's just it just brought it to life for me what stands out most about Stark's artwork during the war how is his art different than the other art that was created at the time. I think for me what stands out the most about Stark's artwork is the serenity of the mm -hmm. works. We are dealing with very horrible conditions, a very horrible situation. It's the, it's the war and it's one of the most gruesome wars the world has ever known. Um, and reading the war diary, again, the, the, the battalion's war diary tells us that these men were th went through a nightmare. They were constantly under the threat of attack from German troops or from the German army that was targeting the railways they were working on mm -hmm. and the, the bridges they were building. They were constantly trying to blow them up. So men were constantly under the threat of fire and they lost a lot of friends. A lot of men they worked with were killed by these attacks. Um, they were doing tough physical work. They were digging, they were pushing, they were pulling, they were lifting, they were moving rails, they were shoveling, they were doing all of this horrible, tough work in even more miserable, cold and wet conditions. But you wouldn't guess that by looking at the sketchbooks. The sketchbooks have such a beautiful serenity to them. There's no record of the horrors that these men were seeing. So that's again causing us to believe that this was a bit of an escape for Stark when he would sit down and do his drawings. He it would he would do drawings and, and illustrations that he would do back home, the landscapes or the the dog that would be hanging around the camp, the horses. There are so many depictions of horses because that's what brought him comfort, or that's what would have brought him comfort. Yeah. So the, the sort of the sheer peacefulness of the drawings is something that, that I find extremely different from other war art that we see. Even in his depictions of the soldiers in the sketchbooks, they're not depicted any, in any way different than the farmers who are haying in the fields. They're just people who were doing their jobs. And it's again extremely interesting that he doesn't at all put in that tinge of, of wartime. It's just a lovely picture book. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. Thank you, Jessica. I loved it. Thank you so much. For more information on William Redver Stark, check out our blog articles on thediscoveredblog.com. Or to learn more about the First World War, please visit us online at bac-lac.gc.ca. 
On our homepage, select Discover the Collection, then select Military Heritage. On this page, you will find a link to our First World War 1914-1918 website containing a list of all our resources related to the First World War. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jessica Ouvrard, and you've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thanks to our guests today, Geneviève Marin and Lynn Curry. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. From this page, you can also view the William Redvers Stark Flickr album found under related links. Thank you.